0: Welcome to the Sporting History Podcast brought to you by the British Society of Sports History in association with the Institute of Historical Research. This episode we're bringing you an excellent paper given by Sam Brady of Glasgow University for the Society's Sports and Leisure Seminar Series. Sam examines sporting wheelchairs and the development of adaptive technology since the pioneering work of Dr Ludwig Gutmann at Stoke Mandeville after the Second World War right through to the present day. And if you're a researcher in sport or leisure history, we're looking for speakers for our 2021-22 season of seminars. If you're a researcher in any aspects of sport or leisure history, in the UK or overseas, we'd love to hear from you. And that's whether you're an established academic, a postgraduate, or an independent researcher with a passion for your subject. The only stipulation is that your paper should be based on your own original research. For more information, or to send us an abstract, Get in touch via our Twitter account at Sporting History 1 or the BSSH website sportinhistory.org. Now let's hear from Raf and Sam.
1: Thanks, Jeff. Um, thanks, everyone, for coming to the Sport and Leisure History Seminar um, run by the British Society of Sports History in conjunction with the Institute of Historical Research. Uh, I'm Raf Nicholson. I'm the chair of the British Society of Sports History. Okay um, so this evening our speaker um, is Sam Brady um, from Glasgow University. Um, Sam is an AHRC funded PhD student working in conjunction with the National Paralympic Heritage Trust um, and he's researching the socio-political and technology history of the sports wheelchair. Um, I think he's about halfway through his PhD at the moment. um, So he's going to be speaking to us on that subject this evening. Um, So over to you, Sam, we're very pleased to have you.
2: Thank you for the introduction, Raph, and thank you for everyone for coming along this evening, especially, again, given all the football and tennis and everything else that's on. Um, So tonight I'm going to be presenting on my PhD research, um, which is looking at the technological and physical history of the sporting wheelchair. Um, it's, as I said, it's an AHRC funded studentship, which is part of the central doctoral partnership programme between the University of Glasgow and the National Paralympic Heritage Trust. Um, the talk is going to be an introduction to the topic and the research, but also kind of a review in progress. Um, as I wanted to share, I'm at with the project at this point, whilst also giving some details of the, of the topic in the background. Um, hopefully, this will be interest, uh, be an interesting insight into the history of this technology, as well as the history of adaptive or Paralympics sport. Um, So I'm going to start by laying out some of the historiography of adaptive sports and wheelchair technology alongside the background to this project to clarify how this research came about. As well, I'll detail my own positionality to the research, as I think it's an important thing to consider when working within disability studies or uh, disability history. I'll then expand on the origins of adaptive sports in the UK, the development of non-sporting wheelchairs, and then the importance of user-led development in this technology um from this point i'll focus on some, some of the major themes in the research which tie into these historical narratives around the technology and the people who used or made these wheelchairs this includes ideas of agency for athletes using the chairs, concepts around specialization of sporting technology and the developments of the industry that makes sporting wheelchairs uh, towards the end i'm going to address some of my recent data collection and the sociological approach i'm taking to te- te- taking to the technology as well as uh, some next steps for the research uh so recently there's been an increased interest around the development of uh disabled or paralympic sport um, and also the history of the paralympics itself so in the non-academic world this can be seen with the recent netflix documentary phoenix rising which is very good if you haven't seen it um, and also the upcoming um paralympic games in tokyo anecdotally i'm part of some um adaptive sport Facebook groups, and they've seen a a big increase in activity during the pandemic um, as athletes are increasingly keen to share their experiences and speak about these sports. Additionally, there've also been a number of recent publications in this topic. So uh, in the academic world, we have Dennis J. Frost's book about the history of adaptive sport in Japan. And in a more mainstream uh, book, we have David Davis's exploration of uh, the World War II veterans that started wheelchair basketball in the United States. And these books both came out last year. This is also supplemented by the work of sport and heritage organisations. So there's the National Parachute Heritage Trust, which I'm working with, and then also Sport and Heritage have a disability and women's sports project. Um, this is all to say that with, within both academic and mainstream sporting history, there's becoming a, a increasing focus on adaptive sports, and I think this inclusion in uh, uh, and, and further its inclusion in wider conceptualisations in sporting history is a positive development, as this affords the sports and its athletes more recognition that they were previously denied. Adaptive sports have often been presented as separate to able-bodied sport, part of human interest pages, or as opposed to the sporting sections. As disability history itself grows into its own field, it's important to broaden the opportunities with able-bodied and other intersectional sporting histories. As adaptive sports and sporting history um, uh, and sporting technology have been and remain potent sites of p- polit- uh, social and political agency for disabled people. However, much of the research into adaptive sports history focuses mainly on the events themselves. So. The Paralympic competitions and that's understandable as these are the most widely recognized and accessible examples of adaptive sports in the mainstream but this does mean that other aspects of adaptive sport history have gone under researched. Um, the history of adaptive sport technology such as prosthetics and wheelchairs uh, have, see- have, largely gone on, uh, have largely only been addressed indirectly uh, or as a-, a smaller part of a broader history. Um, this is often seen in offhand comments about how the progression of the technology improved results or made equipment more or less expensive. Um, but more work therefore needs to be done to focus on the topic in detail and to properly understand the history of the technology and the role it's played in the history of the sports themselves. Um, so, thinking about sporting wheelchair historiography in particular, there are a few examples of notable academic work. So, um, accomplished athlete and academic Rory Cooper. Um, did briefly note the history of the racing wheelchair in an article about wheelchair racing sports science. Um, but given this was published in 1990, it's a bit, <laughs> a bit out of date. Um, as well Stuart Watson's 2019 article uh, about the socio-technical history of the ultra lightweight wheelchair, uh, details the user-led evolution of sporting wheelchair technology, which drove improvements in everyday devices um, um, this research establishes many important ideas for the history of wheelchair technology primarily the user-led focus and kind of the meaning behind that action however this article and others like it um, are more focused on the development of the everyday wheelchair this is a also an under-researched topic um, uh, but it reduces the role of sport to a background factor into a different aspect of disability history there have been some dedicated pieces around sport and chair history, but these are mostly relegated to specialist publications uh, like the wheelchair sport magazine Sport and Spokes, and therefore are largely inaccessible to many audiences. And so thus the kind of background to the studentship was established. Um, there needs to be more dedicated research into the history of the sport and wheelchair, uh, utilizing the user-led and socio-critical focus that Stuart and Watson grounded their work in to construct a broader and focused exploration of the history of sport and wheelchair technology. And uh, yeah, to quickly address my own positionality, because as I said, I think it's important. Um, I'm not a wheelchair user and I don't possess a form of physical impairment. Um, so the extent to which I could fully understand the lived experience of disability or even using these devices is, of course, limited. Um, and to an extent, this has likely had an, a direct impact on how I will view certain aspects of the history or um, interpret the experiences of others. On the other hand, I hope this outgroup status allows me to bring some new perspective to the subject. Um, I mentioned this partially to set expectations um, and also to justify my use of oral history methodology, which I'll talk about later on, um, and also clarify my use of language. So I personally use disability first language, um, meaning I'll say disabled person as opposed to person with a disability. Um, this is to encapsulate the political aspect of this identity category. Um, uh, in that according to the social model of disability people with impairments are disabled by the wider society they live in as opposed to their bodily capabilities so they are a disabled person um further i'm referring to adaptive or paralympic sports i will be mainly talking about wheelchair-based sports just given the nature of the topic um uh, i i'll say adaptive sport mainly as i've been told this is the preferred term Of course, there's debate and differing opinions around all this language, so hopefully this suits everyone. Um, But anyway, with all that out the way, um, I'm going to start by outlining some of the history of adaptive sports and wheelchairs prior to the emergence of specific sporting wheelchairs. So in Britain, um, the origins of competitive adaptive sport can be traced back to the work of Sir Dr Ludwig Gutmann at Stoke Mandoval Hospital from the mid 1940s onwards. This is not to say that sport for disabled people did not exist prior to this, but that the Second World War, after the Second World War, there was an increased number of people with spinal cord injuries who required improved medical and rehabilitative services. Furthermore, the work of Guttmann and his contemporaries worldwide led to the establishment of international competitive sport, which evolved into what we know today as the Paralympics. Gutman was made head of the National Spinal Spinal Injury Center at Stoke Mandeville in uh, 1943 and he introduced a number of revolutionary medical techniques that prolonged the life of those with spinal cord injuries. However, one of his key aims was to reintroduce disabled people back into society, or as he graciously put, turn them into taxpayers. At Stoke Mandeville, there was a number of rehabilitative methods used from physiotherapy to job training. But sport became a major aspect of his rehabilitative program as it taught wheelchair skills, encouraged physical exercise and socializing, and drew on many patients' existing competitiveness. In fact, this was in line with a number of trends as sport was increasingly used as a method of rehabilitation from the early 20th century for for both military and civilians. It's important to note, however, that at this time, adaptive sports was firmly rooted in medicine and rehabilitation. Whilst many hospitals and organizations like Stoke Mandeville, did start hosting sporting competitions, The primary purpose uh, remained in the wheelchair skills and athleticism the sports taught. So the aforementioned Dennis Frost highlights this focus in his exploration of Paralympics and disability sport in post-war Japan. Um, So uh, an example he brings up is how the Paralympics were brought to Japan in order to introduce the new and effective rehabilitation techniques to Japanese doctors. Um, There are advertisements um, in Japan at the time of the games about um, uh, that described the paralympics as the social rehabilitation of the physically disabled framing sports solely as a means of this kind of physical rehabilitation this is not unexpected however as the lives and status of disabled people remained in the medical realm at this time um and the ideas of truly competitive sport for disabled people was not necessarily the aim of medical staff or officials in charge this can be seen in a lot of organizations um such as another example brought up by frost which is the um the far east and south pacific games Uh, which was held in Asia, and um, the first charter for these games developed in 1974 explicitly focused on the goal of developing rehabilitation techniques and exchanging medical information, with the establishment of sporting competitions having an overall smaller presence in the charter of this sporting organisation. Interviews have also expressed the prevalence of these attitudes in the 1970s and 1980s, as they felt they weren't able to advance the sport due to medicalized restrictions and this isn't to challenge the re- rehabilitative social or physical benefits of adaptive sports but to highlight how these intentions were initially built into the games and establish how this then later manifested importantly this is also affected in the state of wheelchair technology by the mid 20th century as like sports themselves they were designed with an innate medical purpose
3: so um, up to
2: the mid 20th century Um, Wheelchair technology had been closely associated with medicine and rehabilitation, and this is embodied in the design of wheelchairs themselves. Um, Due to cultural assumptions about disability, it was not considered that disabled people or their um, their devices would be active in any real way. And and this assumption was made manifest in wheelchair design. So a good example of this are the uh, Trevo wheelchairs, which you can see in the picture on the screen now. Um, these devices were akin to armchairs with wheels attached and their bulk highlights the priority given to safety and comfort in design. Other design aspects which highlight the assumptions about disabled people can be found in the heavy weight of the chairs, high back crests, which limited upper body movement, or wheel configurations which limited the control of the person using the chair. The implication was that the wheelchair, and by proxy those that use them, were not considered past the realm of the home or the hospital. And vitally, this did not stop wheelchair users from playing sport or, uh, or being active in any way. Um, yet their mobility and the sports they could play were limited. So a possible consequence of this could be the types of sport that were initially played at Stoke Mandeville, um, sports like archery, tennis, uh, table tennis, and fencing, as they did not require quick or repeated movements of the wheelchair itself. Um, this isn't to say that no developments were made with wheelchair technology up to this point, however. So um, lighter folding wheelchairs emerged in the 1930s, um, kind of often associated with Everest and Jennings. And the style of this folding chair became the standard for many in the late 1940s to roughly the late, uh, around the late 1960s. Um, And this overall provided more freedom for users. Um, Everest and Jennings had an advantage in that uh, one of the founders, Herbert Everest, himself was a wheelchair user, meaning that he could draw on his experiences to inform their product design, which was actually a rarity in the medical market. More often than not, wheelchair users had no role in the design of this technology, as manufacturers dismissed their concerns and desires. Yet from this point on, it was users who revolu- revolutionised wheelchair technology, and in doing so redefined the purpose of these devices. And so this leads to a number of the major themes of the research, as a, as a variety of major developments in wheelchair technology came about due to the work of wheelchair users themselves. This represents a shift in agency for disabled people who are now able to leverage their lived experience as athletes and users of this technology to improve wheelchairs for their active needs. As well, this use led adaptation led to a number of significant developments, including the specialisation of wheelchairs for sports and the development of new economic opportunities for disabled people. So Brubaker notes that uh, by the 1960s, innovation in wheelchair technology had halted due to production and cost concerns. This, combined with existing dismissals, or, or dismissals of um, wheelchair users' inputs due to the kind of aforementioned negative attitudes towards uh, disabled people, helped shift the site of technical innovation from able-bodied engineers and product designers to resourceful or handy uh, wheelchair users and athletes. Um, athletes, particularly those playing basketball, needed lighter and more responsive chairs to improve their performance and gain an advantage on their opponents. So starting in the late 19th, in the, in the mid 1970s, a number of basketball players in different countries started to experiment with wheelchair technology for better athletic performance, such as um, Jeff mini and Brad Parks in the US, Vincent Ross and Bud Rumpel in the UK and many, many others in mainland Europe. These adaptations began with small modifications to their existing chairs um, and weight handling performance could be improved by tweaking certain design aspects. Simple modifications included removing back facing push handles or side guards to help reduce weight. However, a more substantial development was the introduction of the camber plate. So um, experimentation with a negative camber, which is when the wheels are kind of positioned in in a certain way, where the bottom is further out than the top, was first done in folding wheelchairs. Um, It was was done using a small piece of metal um, with two holes, which you can see on the screen now, Um, and users did this by modifying the crossing point of the X frame that let the chairs fold. Um, So by introducing the camber bar, this made the wheel spread out at the bottom, giving the chair's greater stability due to the lower stance of the chair. And it isn't as extreme as the type of camber that we see nowadays as the other photos that, uh, will show you, um, but this early modification still provided many substantial benefits. This included quicker turning speeds and a more natural pushing position for the user. This change made a huge difference to the performance of these chairs, and had a knock-on effect to improving the quality of the sport itself. Soon, however, users started to create new types of wheelchairs entirely, using what, um, instead of modifying their existing devices. This was done by creating dedicated frames, which transformed the feel and the performance of the chair. So up to this point, the aforementioned folding chair had become the standard hospital equipment, and many wheelchair users in the 1960s and 1970s uh, used them in their everyday and sporting lives. The folding mechanism, however, added a significant amount of weight and complexity to the chair, um, as well as impacting its stability and rigidity. And so wheelchair users started to develop a box frame or rigid style chair. Um, essentially, making a literal box using circular or um, or tubing or, or tubed aluminium uh, 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 tubing, um, and then had a horizontal axle bar uh, running across for the wheels. And the axle bar was intentionally designed so the wheels could be cambered, and it did so at a greater angle, so enhancing the benefits of camber um, that already existed further the box frame was inherently lighter and stronger due to the lack of aforementioned folding material uh, mechanisms and the use of new materials like aluminium all of these changes so cambered wheels new materials reduced weight and improved responsiveness made a significant impact in wheelchair basketball and other wheelchair-based sports Um, it's also important to stress here that these improvements made at first for better performance in basketball also had significant benefits for everyday use Uh, so at this point there was no delineation between wheelchairs used for sports and those used for everyday activities like we have today Uh, users modified their existing wheelchairs for basketball and found these improvements around weight responsiveness and strength useful in everyday life this is why previous research into non-sporting wheelchairs has often considered the role of wheelchair sports these improvements were born of their users active lifestyles but led to fundamental changes in wheelchair designs Disabled designers in this early period even made designs to cater for both sport and everyday. So um, Jeff Brake in the US, Vincent Ross in the UK, and uh, Rainer Kuschal in Switzerland made chairs with adjustable axle points, allowing users to select the height or centre of gravity they wanted for particular situations. So the picture on the slide shows uh, Rainer Kuschal's barrier box system, which has six different potential wheel positions that the user can interchange. Nevertheless, in order for players to beat out the competition there was a need for specifically designed basketball chairs as the inclusion of different um, modes impacted their overall effectiveness eventually these adjustable designs faded out creating a distinction between the kind of active style or lightweight everyday wheelchair and um, the sporting wheelchairs that we have today this also occurred as many of the technical innovations in basketball chairs have little, prat- little practical use in everyday life so, for instance, um, as wheel camber increased over time, the chairs became distinctly wider, and this meant that they no longer fit through standard door frames. Um, also, basketball chairs introduced anti-tip wheels, which went at the back of the chair, and essentially meant that um, players could shoot the ball without tipping out the back of the chair. But by doing so, wheelchair users can pop up their wheels if they were trying to, say, mount the pavement, um, which, given we live in a world not designed for wheelchair users, that's quite, that's quite important. Um, so this resulted in the in a, a specialized in, in a need for specialization with focused sport and wheelchairs that could continue to evolve um, based solely on the needs of the sport as opposed to
3: sport and everyday requirements.
2: Um, as the basketball chair developed, other sporting chairs continued their own technical evolution. So wheelchair racing emerged as a new sport for athletes in the form of short races and marathons in the early 1960s. It was added to the 1964 Paralympic Games, but only for 100 or uh, 200 meter race events. Similarly to basketball, athletes desire to push the limits of the technology in order to improve their performance. The heavy weight of early wheelchairs alone presented significant issues for wheelchair races. Although many of the previous adaptations for basketball chairs, such as camber, rigid box frames, and general rate reduction, greatly benefited racing. Racing did face some of its own unique challenges, however. So for example, um, at high speeds, users often uh, experienced wheel fluttering. So it was the rapid and unintentional movements of the front caster wheels um, at the the front of the chair. Um, This affected the the control that users had on their chair, but also um, impacted general acceleration and aerodynamic performance. Solutions were found by the introduction of washers, improving the forks that held the wheels, and then introducing a bar across the forks, which helped the, the wheel stay aligned. Um, At the same time, dedicated racing chairs became longer, experimented with uh, different seating positions and increased the size of their rear wheels. These changes allowed users to make more efficient use of the forces surrounding the pushing technique. Different seating positions improved power transfer and and longer wheelchairs with bigger wheels, improved acceleration and aerodynamic performance. So the racing chair underwent a series of very rapid developments between quite a short period of time um, as exemplified in this slide so as you can see here um, there are four chairs uh, there are four chairs made between 1984 and 1995 all, um, all by the same manufacturer magic in motion and uh, these highlights the changes that wheelchairs uh, racing wheelchairs underwent as the shape altered from four to three wheels and chairs became significantly longer with new seating positions uh, in this period users challenged the sporting rules that were based in medical or re- rehabilitative approaches to sport Many of these rules were around the length or height of chairs uh, to ensure fair competition and consistency, which um, which was especially important for athletes from developing countries. Reportedly, it was common practice for wheelchair athletes who did not have access to suitable equipment to be provided spare wheelchairs by other nations at international events like the Paralympic Games. Even though more advanced chairs were continually being developed and released, the emphasis still remained on equity in the sport, ensuring rehabilitation for all, as opposed to elite competition. However, such rules also halted the development of safer and more effective racing wheelchairs. In the 1980s, dedicated three-wheeled racing chairs uh, began to emerge as the change in weight and aerodynamics greatly improved performance, whilst also addressing issues like the aforementioned wheel fluttering. However, um, the shape and form of the chair was banned, as it's um, uh, uh, likely as its significant change in function and shape limited the goal of teaching everyday wheelchair skills. As well, uh, steering compensators were banned, presenting a significant issue for uh, a, a significant safety issue for athletes. So previously, if a race wanted to turn, um, they had to slightly lift, shift, and drop the chair as they were turning um, until the desired angle uh, could be reached. Steering compensators allowed athletes to automatically turn the front fork of the wheel with a simple hit of a mechanism. So the compensator would be programmed to track straight. Um, the athlete would then hit the left side where they need to turn the track, and the wheel would turn. And then when they finished the bend and they want to go on the straight they would just hit it the other side and it would turn back to straight um to, uh, but by by banning this feature alongside kind of more significant and effective breaks um athlete safety was being put um after the desire to hit to adhere to rehabilitative norms most significantly this rule only applied in track racing events meaning athletes are switching between two style of chairs when doing roadways road races and track races However, officials altered this rule after the 1988 Seoul Paralympic Games, thanks in part to campaigning by wheelchair users like Rory Cooper and Martin Morse, which sparked another intense period of innovation in racing chair technology between 1988 and 1992. So whilst there's certainly more history of racing chairs and basketball chairs, alongside other chairs I haven't mentioned yet, like tennis chairs, rugby chairs, skiing chairs, um, I think it's worth focusing on the agency that wheelchair users had in the development of this technology. So in this later period, around the 1980s, um, disabled people were front and centre in technological development, uh, doing so alongside challenging the established rules of the sport. The developments in the technology and arguably, arguably in the sport itself came at the will and desire of athletes who wanted to expand their performance capabilities. And this is a constant theme that can be seen throughout the history of this technology. However, a significant aspect of this agency was the development of the industry that produced sporting wheelchairs. Uh, So in the early days of adaptation and modification, wheelchair users would often work by themselves or with friends and family to adapt their chairs. These were homemade projects done in garages and living rooms and often done by trial and error. error. Eventually though, some of these creators began to make chairs for others. So a good example of this would be the aforementioned Vincent Ross, who after creating a few rigid style basketball chairs for himself and friends, ended up making uh, chairs for the entire GB, wheelchair basketball team in the 1980 Paralympics later Vincent like many others uh, turned this passion into a business and after demand um, from wheelchair users was incredibly apparent some of the companies were established all over the world and this development um, of a cottage industry demonstrates the new degree of agency that was possible with steady innovation around lightweight wheelchairs these are wheelchairs made by and for disabled people who understood the desires of customers as they were also athletes and wheelchair users in their own right A few of these companies reach great success, as seen by the international popularity of brands like uh, Shadow, Crickie, Kushal, Top End, um, just to name a few. Uh, Furthermore, many of these businesses hire disabled people as representatives, designers, manufacturers, um, creating a new area of employment based on their specialist knowledge. On the other hand, uh, the development of the sporting wheelchair industry may also showcase a loss in agency that I, I feel is very key to the history of this technology. So towards the 1990s and the early 2000s, uh, some of the sporting wheelchair companies um, had grown in size and popularity, and many ended up being acquired by other companies. This was either for branding, um, distribution in certain geographic markets, or just for use of certain designs and techniques. Nevertheless, these market leaders were then acquired themselves by international healthcare conglomerates, such as the acquisition of the um, wheelchair user owned and led Quickie by kind of giant healthcare corporation, Subrise Medical in the 1990s. In many circumstances, the original designers and creators of these smaller brands left their companies, transforming the industry from one that was once uh, led by wheelchair users in the majority um, to one where in, my, in, in the majority of major brands were operated by non-disabled people. And I'm, I should make clear here, I'm not arguing that um, only wheelchair users should work in the industry or develop this technology. Um, in fact, presenting the industry as one that was only user-led is actually quite disingenuous and not representative of the history. So uh, as I mentioned, like family members and friends who weren't necessarily disabled would also help develop chairs in the early days. But then also um, major brands in the in the market uh, were, uh, were started by um, people who weren't necessarily wheelchair users themselves. And this is seen in companies like um, Eagle Sports Chairs, Draft Wheelchairs, and uh, Top End. However, there's potentially something lost in the social and political opportunities presented by a um, industry led by and for disabled people, not to mention the aspect of lived experience, which is so important for wheelchair design and for sport in particular.
3: Um, Regardless,
2: it should be noted that these developments occurred at a time of stabilization in sporting chair design. So once the uh, ban on three-wheeled chairs in racing was lifted in 1988, Um, The best form and shape of the racing wheelchair had kind of been found and racing wheelchairs slowly began to be made relatively uniform in their design as compared to the period of wild innovation that took place about a decade prior. Um, Similarly, basketball chairs reached a design design stability around this period with only minor changes in strapping and measurement taking place. Um, Tennis chairs, on the other hand, underwent a relatively um, uh, 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 intense period of change from the late 1980s, moving from a four wheeled basketball style chair to a tennis specific three wheel design, which um, instead of two front wheels had like a a bar at the front, which had one wheel attached. Um, But this was then replaced by a five wheel design in the early 2000s known as a match point chair. And since that chair has been introduced, the design of tennis chairs has largely stayed the same. In the modern era, the increasing professionalism of adaptive sports has pushed athletes towards wheelchairs customized to their specific bodies and playstyles. Uh, while significantly more expensive, this also means there's no longer a need or desire for major innovations. This has coincided with the use of increasingly expensive materials and design techniques, uh, as seen by the increasing presence of carbon fiber racing chairs. From this perspective the stability of the technology is compatible with the change in the industry manufacturers are now less interested in drastic technical changes or innovations as this would incur high um, r d costs and production costs and athletes find more benefit to fine-tuning the types of chairs that they're used to in fact um, one of my participants remarked when you get to your chair uh, um when you get your chair to a point that you consider is right it's difficult to make any changes and innovate if you do something that doesn't work out you've ruined an entire chair as well, increased sponsorship, opportunities, increased sponsorship opportunities limit the need for athletes to make and modify their own equipment, as they now work directly with manufacturers to make fully fitted chairs. So perhaps it's more accurate to say that the degree of agency that can be found in, in, in the sporting chair industry has changed in nature over time, as opposed to decreased or increased in any undefined quality or quantity. In my eventual thesis, uh, I believe agency will be a significant theme as the way wheelchair users have been involved in the development of of these technologies and how this has changed over time is something that continually fascinates me um, as I've conducted the research. Furthermore, other aspects I've mentioned will play a much larger role in my overall argument, such as the tensions between reinterpretation, stability and technical design of these technologies, or the social and economic impact of the changing cottage industry. I believe these factors are linked in numerous ways and highlights how the substantial uh, how substantial the changes in the sporting chair have been, as well as for the athletes that use them, uh, since the 1940s. Uh, however, I want to continue thinking about this idea of agency as it ties into my current method of data collection, which has been the use of oral history methodology. So, as I mentioned way at the beginning, um, there's a lack of literature around the history of sporting wheelchairs, but this is also true of accessible data or sources, um, especially to someone like me who was outside of both the disabled and also athletic uh, community. As part of the studentship, it was deemed necessary to build up an archive of these stories and narratives to help uh, build future research. Oral history is an incredibly potent resource for historical information, as it directly addresses issues of visibility that often face disabled people in traditional archives. By using this methodology, I believe this also taps into the aspect of agency important to my understanding of the research, as I was able to ask designers directly about their work and explore the social and political environment in which a number of these technical developments were made. Due to COVID-19 and the resulting lockdowns, uh, I conducted my interviews over Zoom between October 2020 and March 2021. Um, The data collection was actually conducted a lot earlier than I planned, I was going to do archive research before, um, but the benefits of conducting remote interviews, Um, allowed me to uh, include a wider range of international participants, which overall has actually served the research better than the original plan. So uh, since ending my interview period a few months ago, I've conducted 38 interviews with participants who varied in sport played, age and involvement with the manufacturing industry or general design technology. It was important to me to interview a variety of people to make sure the project kept a broad view of the range of technology and sports that were covered by the research. Yeah, I also wanted to make sure that I properly encapsulated the differences between these sports athletes and technologies, as I don't want to take a reductionist approach to the variety of chairs that now exist in the market. This is also true of the um, athletes using these chairs, as I wanted to draw on the experiences of both athletes who designed and made their own chairs, as well as athletes who weren't necessarily involved in this process or um, just worked with manufacturers. Further, I needed to consider the role of non disabled people um, and external industries like uh, like bicycle manufacturers and part suppliers. Um, As a result, I've organized my participants into uh, my participant data into a table, as seen on the slide, in order to capture the different aspects of the industry and sport that have been covered by my entities. Participants have been sorted into groups based on the types of sport that they played or the specialized type of sporting chair they worked on. I've also tried to do this in regards to my participant's role in the development of this technology, as some were design- designers and business owners whilst others were athletes only involved in the customization of their specific chair by the manufacturer. Um, this also ties into the sociological aspect of the technology, uh, of, of the research, as I'm drawing on the social construction of technology known as Scott as part of my analysis. Uh, so Scott argues that users have interpretive flexibility around the meaning or purpose of a technology. And that these interpretations can dictate a technology's evolution so this is demonstrated within the um, history of the sporting wheelchair that disabled people have reinterpreted wheelchairs um, from medical devices to pieces of sporting equipment additionally scott argues that there are multiple social groups that have influence over this technical evolution so there are different groups which could be elite athletes casual players um, medical staff um, and they, they all have different interpretations around the meaning or the development of a technology and hence why I'd be sorting my participants into distinct categories. This can then explain the splintering of technological developments as the emergence of specific chairs for different sports. Uh, Thinking about my participants in this way helped me broadly consider the different groups um, and how they kind of interacted with the development of the technology and how this differed in different times, sports and locations. So with all of that in mind, um, I have had some brief thoughts about my data collection um i haven't actually started analyzing them yet um it's been a bit of a busy time um but i've noticed some trends in my participants and kind of what categories they might fit into so for instance i've noticed that there's a big skew in my participants to those who spoke primarily about racing chairs Um, and this might be due to the kind of snowball style of recruitment i used um but i also think this is this kind of makes sense because to me the racing chair underwent a very radical uh, change in design and technology that doesn't necessarily as apparent in other um, types of wheelchairs. Additionally, I also have noticed a lack of gender and racial diversity uh, in my pool of participants, which is not displayed on the slide, obviously, for privacy reasons. Um, at this point in time, I'm unsure how gendered or race the history of this technology is and to what extent this represents broader issues uh, around race and gender in adaptive sports or the industry that makes these chairs. I did ask many participants who m- were majority male and white about broader inclusivity in the sport and the industry, although I feel more rep- representation of non-white and female athletes and designers may shed more light on these aspects. Um, I haven't decided yet if I'm gonna kind of do more interviews, but it's something I've been very conscious of all the way through this process. Um, so moving forward with the project, um, as I said, I'm, I, I haven't yet uh, analyzed those interviews, so I'm kind of aiming to do that in the, in the next couple of months. Um, and I'm also gonna be working towards accessing archives now that the world is opening up again. There are a number of areas that I think will be important for future research, like the wheelchair sports magazine, Sport & Spoke, which I mentioned before. Um, They featured an annual review of lightweight or sporty wheelchairs on the market. And this would give me not only a direct view into what chairs look like, but also would give me a a way to see how they developed over the years and also consider the the language that that was used. So I think this will supplement the narratives um, produced by the oral histories um, by pinpointing the change in the language between lightweight or court chairs to specific basketball, tennis, rugby, et cetera chairs. As well, I feel that the advertisements would actually tell me a lot about the desired or imagined audiences that these chairs were being advertised to, um, which would link to the sociological aspect of uh, the way I'm approaching the technology. Um, I also recognise the need to conduct more research into sporting history itself to find other examples of sporting technology with similar histories of athlete-led evolution. Um, After all, it's not surprising that athletes would be the people who are most interested in improving their technology as this would benefit their performance and the overall level of competition. Um, I'm planning on speaking at the BSSH conference this year um, about how the technology improved the the sport directly. And so I think drawing on other um, technical narratives would be a a valuable point of consideration. Uh, of of comparison I mean. Um, So I would value any recommendations of literature or case studies um, if you happen to have any to hand. Overall um, sporting wheelchairs have a long and complex history which is currently not as well studied as the sporting events that the chairs are used for. My project is primarily focused around a number of key topics in the history of sporting chairs. This includes their technical development due to process of reinterpretation by users, transforming wheelchairs from medical devices to sporting equipment, and as well as the um, increasing specialization and a recent trend towards technical stability. However, it also seeks to understand the social and political aspects of these changes, such as the agency wheelchair athletes found in the homegrown nature of the industry, um, the youth-led development of the technology, and the overall um, evolution of wheelchair sports themselves. Up to this point, I've drawn on history interviews to gather narratives and experiences of of a variety of people involved in um, these sports, with plans to expand this into archival research in the future. Uh, so I hope this has been an interesting perspective into the history of this technology and uh, the disabled people who are instrumental to this narrative. And maybe it's something you'll consider uh, when you hopefully watch the Paralympics later this year. So thank you. And I uh, just have some sources of people want that.
1: Excellent. Thank you so much, Sam. Um, genuinely, absolutely fascinating paper. Um, we Certainly be really, really interested to hear your paper at um, the BSSH conference in in August as well. Um, So thank you very much for that. Um, So just invite anyone to um, raise a hand uh, virtually um, or to type a question in the chat. Um, And yeah, um I see that we've got Malcolm here. Um uh, Malcolm, do you think that the that the development of Netball would count as a as an example of athlete-led innovation in sporting history?
4: <laughs> oh boy, put me on the spot. Okay. Um uh actually I think at the at, at, in the in the in the rules phase rather than the technology phase or or, or state that most sports are uh, most sport de- de- development is 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 athlete leaders is is is, is p- p- participant driven that we tend to fetishize the institutionalization of um of of, of your know, rules and organizing bodies and, and so on and so forth when actually what these are these are these are modifications and adaptations of things that folks folks are a, a, a actually doing if we look at other other forms of basketball other than netball if you look at sort of iowa six on six basketball for for instance that's a that's a very local and specific version of of the game um, and i think most of the things are uh most of our forms of sport are there in many sense but i did have a, a question for sam if i may um, um thanks sam i, I found that re- really interesting and I, and, I, and I, I thought it was a strong parallel to some of the stuff that Dennis Frost does, where he talks about the dialogue between event and conceptualization of d- disability. And here you're talking about technology and the, mm-hmm. the conceptualization of dis- 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 disability. And that seemed to me to be, a, uh, uh, as you say, a, 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 an important enrichment of the, of, of, of the field. What I was interested in, though, was um, the extent to which a bunch of the stuff that you're talking, you're talking about around athlete agency, uh, and the impact on performance can the extent to which that applies to recreational athletes as opposed to the elite athletes who are likely to have their kit being designed for them rather than mm-hmm. um rather than uh, try to manage with some kit that's been designed for some some someone else how much have you been able to look at that recreational aspect um and how significant is it as a as a different sense or a different point of articulation to the stuff that you're talking about.
2: Mm-hmm. Yeah, thank you for that. That's um it's a really interesting distinction because obviously uh, as as I kind of talk about wheelchair sports are a relatively new development. And even then the kind of elite level stuff really, like in a modern version of it, it's only been around for maybe 20 to 30 years. Like the the distinction between kind of recreational and elite is kind of a messy one in the in some of the earlier days of the sport. Because a lot, because you got to remember that the there was a lot of economic opportunities, a lot of sponsorship opportunities, and so really this was people doing this on days off, uh, uh, and they happened to just you know go to major national events. Um, You know, a lot of people that go into the original Paralympics were just kind of taken there from hospitals, institutions, or um, kind of local groups. Um, And so I think really that distinction is only at least in the for for wheelchair-based sports. I don't I don't know as much about other adaptive sports, other disabled sports have only really come about as I say in the last 20 to 30 years. but nowadays that's a much weirder line because um, as, uh, as again, as I was saying um, wheelchair users are working so much more with um, the industry with manufacturers, making chairs made specifically for them, especially at the elite level. I mean you look at people like David Weir, and you know he isn't the kind of person that would, at least far as I understand, isn't the kind of person who would be tweaking and modifying his own chair. Um, he has engineers that does that for him, but a lot of the people who were performing the Paralympics, say 30, 40 years ago, they were the ones doing that themselves as well as competing. So I think it's less of a thing nowadays. Um, um, Or I should say the distinction is much more apparent nowadays, um, but it was a much more of a messier line earlier. Hope that answers the
3: question. (laughs) yes i i think thanks. i think i think that 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 um
4: recent emergence of a lethal professional semi professional performance at least and 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 disability sport is 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 an important one and your dating of it to 20 to 25 years as i hadn't quite put those dates together but that kind of feels about right for
3: me so thanks yeah
1: oh um not seeing any other questions in the chat at the moment but um i have loads so i will um <laughs> exercise my chair's privilege um you did sort of touch on this um with regard to the the racing wheelchairs particularly um but how does the um how do the kind of governing bodies um deal with these technological innovations how much is that a factor in in terms of kind of controlling the technology um and and i'm just thinking about all of the talk around um kind of when oscar pistorius was on his um on his, his special leg and people were saying it's not fair for him to compete because he's actually better than somebody with, um, you know, somebody competing in the main Olympics um, because he's got this amazing technology. So how much is that kind of rhetoric and and those, those sort of ideas about trying to actually control the technology and stop it being too good? Is that a, a discourse around mm-hmm. this at all?
2: Yeah, it's a, it's a really interesting question. It's actually something I ended up reading a bit on today. It kind of just came up in something unblatant. and I was like, oh, mm-hmm. Um, so as far as I can tell from the athlete's perspective, um, there was a little bit of like, Ooh, is this kind of like technological doping in the earlier days, but I think the general impetus was driving towards innovation, driving towards change, um, kind of making the chairs as good as they can be really flaunting in the face of the rules as much as possible. Um, like there's lots of instances of people having chairs that by the rules themselves, because they had like various um uh requirements for like measurements and height and length and all that kind of stuff um so taking chairs to games that they know w- w- aren't allowed and just seeing if they would be allowed on and like actively getting disqualified from matches and stuff just because or, or races or whatever just because they they chance bringing a certain type of chair and that and i've heard lots of that from various um from various sources from interviews and stuff the institutions themselves um yeah quite a lot of rules around this stuff the thing is it's actually kind of hard to track down the specific like it needs to be x long and X whatever and what's interesting is there were very tight rules at the start of the game so around um uh the time working with the hospitals with the stoke Mandeville, uh, so this is like the 1960s 1970s there were very strict rules about using certain types of chairs certain shapes and very much more in that kind of medical design of chairs I think there's even some conspiracy theory about they were being sponsored by one of the major manufacturers, and they didn't like modification because it took out their profit margins. So, but um, but but nowadays the rules are comparatively really lax. Like uh, I was talking to a manufacturer, and he was talking. Apparently, he was saying comparing it to something like F one. They have you know booklets and booklets of all these technical rules they have to go through. And in wheelchair sports, it just really isn't that much. Like, as long as it's keeping to certain specifications, like number of wheels, or, you know, kind of, again, I think the height can sometimes be a thing, things like basketball and rugby. But other than that, it's kind of whatever. And it, it, there's kind of just been an unwritten consensus around this is what a rugby chair looks like. This is what a basketball chair looks like, etc. Because they tend to be the things that perform the best. You know? so
1: that's really interesting, thank you. Um, mm-hmm i'll I'll ask another um so the oral histories um I noticed that you it it looks like you're intending to um keep your interviewees anonymous um which is an interesting methodological decision actually um and i suppose um in some according to some oral historians would actually be kind of counter to to maybe some of the principles of oral history in the sense of giving these people a voice and um and their identities actually being important um so I think that that is quite an interesting decision could you kind of talk to us a little bit about uh, about your reasons for that and um and yeah
2: so um it's actually kind of the opposite um I'm not in the in the end thesis the plan is to not have anyone anonymized or pseudonymized or anything like that. The only reason yeah. it isn't on the slides that I presented today, uh, today is just because I'm still waiting on people getting back to me to make sure they're okay with me using things. And I didn't want to be like, oh, I have 30 participants who are fine with it and eight I don't know about. So I just thought it's easier just to anonymize everyone. Just And then maybe in a year, then I can tell you all the names. But um, I've been lucky, actually, that most people are very happy to be named. And I don't know if that's just because people aren't assuming this is going to be used for anything you know bad or anything or if this is just because uh, people are really kind of keen to get these stories out especially because there's been little work on it so I, i don't really know but um yeah i had i have the design in there for um anonymization or pseudonymization and so far no one's taken it up which i'm very very happy with
1: yeah, that's great thank you um sorry i just in my day-to-day i'm constantly dealing with sociologists who are telling me that it's it's ethically unsound to reveal people's identity so i'm just particularly yeah. attuned to that
2: yeah i'm um, I'm technically based in sociology um even though this is a history project i'm technically in sociology and i'm kind of having to navigate that a little bit um, and thankfully my supervisors are kind of just do what works best for the project which means i'm just going to do whatever's easiest to me so
1: <laughs> cool OK, uh, well, I apologise for making an assumption. Oh, no, no, no that's a good question. <laughs> Jeff?
0: Uh, yeah, actually, just thinking about um, sort of technology, because I was thinking, oh, the comparison between uh, wheelchair technology and Formula One, and I'm glad that Malcolm brought that up. But now the kind of Paralympic sport is has a much higher profile, although um, not as high as it should be still, um, are sort of... M- sports manufacturers like formula one companies um, looking at moving into that market and kind of you know because I, it's, a, it's a thing that i know very little about
2: no so it's a really good question um so this is something that i've been aware of and it's more finding specific instances with like you know good sources to really like to use but um there's a couple of examples of like um, car manufacturers like bmw making uh chairs for the uh us um i think it was the the racing team or the athletics team in rio and was uh i don't know the full details because i haven't had access to stuff but as far as i understand there was some big issue they didn't have enough uh, time or money to make the chairs as good as they could be and then some athletes chose to not use these in in theory very expensive and high-tech pieces of equipment but yeah there's lots of um uh, kind of interlinks with different industries. And there's one thing that I want to put into the project, but I'm trying to figure out like how big of a thing it actually is. Cause it seems to be the lots of car or bike manufacturers will get involved with the industry, do some work for a couple of years, t- generally within the Paralympic cycles in recent years, and then will kind of leave and this is kind of like a charity project or like a little side venture they've been doing. Um, which isn't necessarily the best thing. It also has worked out sometimes, I know. Um uh, Cannondale, the bike manufacturer, I think they did some work and apparently that went over well from what I know. So, um, but in terms of F1 specifically, I don't really know from that industry. I think there's a lot of people who've kind of had those technical skills and have brought them or drawn influence from them, but I don't know a specific you know, manufacturers. But um, in uh, in Japan, there's a lot of work with um, uh, 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 Honda and Nissan. They do a lot of stuff and a lot of the carbon fiber work, which I think come, all comes from F1. Has, is now being used in racing chairs and stuff. So there, there are clear parallels, but I don't know how much of that is just general, you know, sporting equipment uh, or, or, or race equipment evolution, as opposed to specific, we're going to
3: work with real chairs. Great, thanks.
1: Okay, um, there is Raph, a question. Oh.
3: Raph, if I can just jump in there quickly.
4: Sam, um, you asked about uh, areas where participants who are driving the technological de- development and it's not my specialist patch but cycle racing early cycle racing and i'm thinking there um particularly in the shift from the the the, the high wheeler to the safety cycle uh-huh. so a sort of 1890s ish um might be worth having a look at for some of that historical contextualization I, 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 i've i've that's one of those patches where i get the feeling there was a lot of blokes
3: working in their back sheds to 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 to, 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 to tweak their kit all hey, right thank you
1: thank you malcolm you're so useful um And there is a, um, I've just had a a question sent to me in the chat um, from Carol Osborne. um, And she says, please, can you ask Sam how it was that basketball came into the frame early at Stoke Mandeville, given that the chairs were presumably less efficient for the game? Or was it a case of shots and passes being taken from a static position?
2: That's really interesting. Um, It's something that I'm not 100% clear on myself, about, like the timeline of these various sports, because I know basketball is much bigger in the US. And then it was introduced at some point at Mandiple. I know that they did do a lot of... Um, so in the war they would be sitting in beds and they would do simple ball games, like passing the ball to each other. And I kind of assume that as just an, an extension of, of ball games, they were like, try pushing your wheelchairs whilst also pat, you know, sh- shooting balls around or whatever. And given that there was a lot of work between different countries and um, physiotherapists from different countries and uh, different institutions, I would assume that someone mentioned somewhere on the line, oh, we're doing basketball. Oh, we should try that and that that's kind of how it developed but as far as i know it was never really static um like there were uh videos of uh, the 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 paralympic characters trust have of um i believe it's rome in the 1960s the first paralympics and you can see them moving around and they're like even though they're in very heavy chairs they're still moving around and you know um, maneuvering and and, uh, sweeping in and out of each other and shooting and all and whatever else it's just obviously they. It was just a lot harder, and it wasn't as efficient. And I think it's actually kind of interesting um, if a if a if a if a wheelchair user then used one of our modern chairs, they would be zipping around just because they they had to train their body so much just because they were so heavy. Um, but yeah, as far as I know, it was never static or never um, just passing the ball like that. So, okay, um,
1: Carol says fascinating. Thank you, Sam. Thank you. Um, so, just um another question about the oral history, if I may um, how have how have you gone about recruiting people? I think you mentioned um, there being a bit of a snowballing technique mm-hmm. um, but how how was has that been difficult because presumably um, if this hasn't been been done before, that's one of the issues is actually finding people to talk to.
2: yeah, so recruitment has been a, it was kind of an interesting one because it started with oh, the trust have links to these people or my, um, uh, my, my supervisor had previously done some research into a similar thing. And he was like, oh, I know this person. Um, and even then, you know, n- having names is different to actually getting in contact with people or actually getting the interviews. Um, so it started off like that initially. Um, and, by, and some of my literature review stuff, people like Rory Cooper, who were athletes themselves, uh, or people whose names that just came up a lot, they, they also were people that I went for. But then eventually kind of devolved into snowball recruitment because a lot of people would mention you know, oh, if you're, if we're talking about, you know, this thing, oh, I actually had a friend who worked with this company and you should talk to them about this. Or um, oftentimes I would ask the people a bunch of questions and they'd be like, I don't think you should talk after the interview. I don't think you should talk to me. I think you should talk to this other person, um, which would be really useful before the interview, but um, it's a, it's good from a comparison point of view anyway. So, um, but yeah, so it's mainly been snowball recruitment. I think that's, as I was mentioning. I think it's part of the issue with Focusing on racing and also focusing on kind of, you know, white male or whatever perspective, um, just because you end up filtering around the same people. Um, and the annoying thing is, there actually are a lot more people who are probably even more important to the history of the technology that I haven't been able to interview, but they, for whatever reason, I just can't get in contact with them. So uh, Marilyn Hamilton, for example, was um, a very famous, um, kind of, uh, she, she set up Quickie, which is one like the big wheelchair companies. And, um, and, uh, and, and she's, recently been interviewed by a number of kind of technology organizations and for some reason I just can't get through to her which is fair enough um but but because of these other realms and ways that people have been interviewed I like still have access to their stories it's just not in the direct kind of talking to me about my project so there are ways to navigate it.
1: Great right, that's really interesting um and yeah I think that's always the way with oral history and sometimes it's the um sometimes you end up getting the best data from the people you're not expecting as well. I don't know if yeah, you yeah, found that, yeah.
2: Completely. I mean, there was, um, there's been so many instances of um, people who I wasn't gonna contact and someone else put me in contact with them and they gave me this like amazing little snippet or like little quote and I'm like, that's perfect. Um, I should also say, actually I forgot, um, as I mentioned, I'm part of some Facebook groups for like, you know, the history of adaptive sports, the history of wheelchair racing. And I also did some recruitment in there. And that was another instance of people who I wouldn't have considered contacting so there's um programs for Wheelchair Sports in like the University of Illinois. And I, I I kind of had been mentioned like, oh, you should maybe talk to the head of like the head coach. But I thought that's going to be more about like the sports science side of things. And I'm not as focused on that. So I might leave it. But then one of them ended up getting in contact with me. And then we ended up having like a things like a two and a half hour interview with again, some as you as you say, some of the most like rich data I could get. So like it just it just works out that way sometimes.
1: Absolutely. Yeah, that's great. Um, well, look forward to hearing more about it uh, once you've done a little bit more analysis. Um, and so if anyone wants to register for our British Society of Sports History Conference, this is a little bit of a taster of what's to come there. I don't actually think registration is open yet, um, but um, details will be available hopefully not in a not too distant future on sportinhistory.org. Um I believe that this is our last seminar of the academic year. Is that right, Jeff? Jeff is nodding. Um, so um just look out for emails from us um in the um in the coming weeks and months about what's happening in September. Um I believe that we're going to continue um, keeping the seminars accessible via Zoom, um, even if we have some some semblance of an in-person seminar as well. Um, but yeah uh, that's it for for um, this academic year. Um, but what a wonderful paper to end the academic year on um absolutely fascinating. Thank you so much Sam thanks everyone for coming um and perhaps everyone could just temporarily unmute themselves to actually give Sam a round.